Welcome everyone to today's devotion. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2, um, and this chapter looks at two key issues. The first is holiness, which bleeds in from chapter 1, so we talked a little bit about it yesterday. The other is that of submission, so so two key uh, Christian um, issues. Uh, let's start with obedience here in the first uh, 12 verses. Uh, it starts here in verse 1. So put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Very basic introduction to sanctification. Uh, it's, it's put away all the things of the flesh and the world and pride, but put all those things aside. The list he gives is deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. I mean, just pause for a minute and consider how much better our world would be if everyone put these things away, uh, just, just in general. Um, and certainly the Christian should. But Peter also uses the uh, spiritual milk metaphor. Paul will use this, and I believe the writer of Hebrews uses it as well, um, but usually in condemnation. He says that you, 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 you have been on milk, but you should be eating meat now. Um, Peter's point is to say these things are very basic. You should at least get these things right, to put off the old man and put on the new man. This isn't um, deep theological discourse, but rather this is basic Christianity. Long for the spiritual milk uh, that is necessary to, to grow in, in Christ. And part of that involves putting off the old and putting on the new. I want to skip down um, to verse 9, not because 4 to 8 aren't important, but because I think we'll be able to summarize some of that uh, here in verse 9. It says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, remember, this fits within the context of talking about holiness. Uh, this is very Johannine. You are in darkness, now in your light. Uh, you cannot be with one foot in one and one foot in the other. This is very black and white, uh, almost literally uh, language here. Uh, you're either walking in darkness or you're walking in light. However, notice the way he goes about saying that. He says, you were chosen a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. Right, And this is within the context about being holy. So, so in chapter 1, it's be holy for God is holy. In chapter 2, it's be holy for you are, you are being made holy. Right? Those whom God saves, he sanctifies. He makes them holy. Now, the, but there's a deeper reason why this is significant. If you know your Bible, that language should sound familiar. Go back all the way to Exodus 19. Uh, there, uh, the Israelites are at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they're going to be there for quite a while. In fact, this is what dominates the rest of the book. Many people will divide Exodus into pre-Sinai and uh, post-Sinai, right? Um, and chapter 19, they arrive, and here they, they, they make a covenant with God, or God makes a covenant with them, uh, that leads to the giving of the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. Uh, uh, so, so there's a lot going on here. Here, they, they come to the presence of God. Here at the top of the mountain, they, they see the lightning, they, 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 they see the thunder, all that sort of stuff. Um, um, that's the presence of God. Um, but there, we get the covenant that they make with God, and there God says He has chosen Israel to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people called for His own possession. So what Peter is doing is he's saying the promises made at Sinai are ultimately fulfilled at the empty tomb. 
We have become God's holy nation. We have become God's possession. We are God's royal priesthood. And it is interesting there. It's royal and priesthood. So you have the distinction between uh, the the king and the priest. Here, it's a royal priesthood. The two are somewhat merged. It is here where Martin Luther developed his uh, doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. This has been carried on through uh, the Baptist tradition. So one of the distinctives of um, Baptist would be things like regenerate church membership, believers' baptism, separation state and church, and some others. Uh, but we would also add priesthood of all believers. What the priesthood of all believers does not mean is, I've got direct access to God, leave me alone. The point isn't to enhance individualism, but rather to enhance community. That as a priest, I now can serve alongside you, pray with you, minister to you, encourage you, as you do the same to me. It is to enhance the experience of, of church community, not, not to uh, pull against it. I remember I pastored a lady who, um, she, she had made a comment like, um, you know, I needed this and this spiritually, but then I realized I am a uh, priest, therefore I can do it myself. Like, okay, but, but that's not really how the doctrine is applied, but, but that's okay. Um, so, so this is a theologically rich uh, section here. But go down to verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he, he says at the beginning of, of chapter 2, going down to the end of this section, uh, the beginning is put these things aside. Right, uh, because this is just basic Christianity. But at the end, he, he says that as royal priesthood, as a holy nation, as a people of God's own possession, uh, holiness uh, is a key component to evangelism. Now, holiness isn't sufficient for evangelism, but hypocrisy will contradict evangelism. Right? So the old saying that supposedly Francis of Assisi said, and from what we can tell he didn't, um, was preach the gospel and if necessary use words. I get what is intended there, but the gospel itself requires words. It is a story that must be told, not just a life that is lived. It must be both. We must uh, 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 have both holiness and um, the truth of the gospel spoken. Um, and uh, uh, that is clearly laid out here. Keep your conduct among non-believers, Gentiles, he uses here, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, uh, they they will uh, suggest otherwise. All right. Uh, so be holy. And then starting in verse 13 to the end chapter, his emphasis is on um, be submissive. Now this will carry into chapter 3 when he looks at the household codes. But notice how he starts here, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, 
honor the emperor. You'll notice how easy it is for Peter to merge the concepts of submission and holiness. So he'll say right from the beginning, uh, be subject, that is submit, uh, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And, and the main one he has in mind here is that of government. Right? This is consistent with what Paul wrote in Romans 13. Jesus states with the coin, get the Caesar what is Caesar's, and, and other passages as well. It is the Christian position that we submit to uh, 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 institutions given by God, including government, um, unless we are asked to do what God says not to do or told not to do what God says to do, right? Um, other than that, we are to pay our taxes, we are to follow the laws, we are to do all of those things. Um, that doesn't mean we don't engage the public square as Christians without apology, but it does mean that we are a people of submission. Yet within that, so he, he opens in verse uh, four, 13 and 14 with that and concludes with honor of the emperor. In the middle is all about holiness, but, but, but the application of this holiness is submission. Um, it's the will of God that you would do good Right and and thus uh, uh, um, uh, make uh, the 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 accusations of others to be foolish. Live as people who are free, but don't use your freedom as a license to sin. This is Paul in uh, Romans six, um, uh, which is I think a great way of summarizing our day and time, isn't it? Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as living as servants as God. So notice, servants of God is the language of submission, but it's in the context of, of holiness. So this is a problem America's had. Um, when freedom is granted, how is it expressed? Is freedom um, uh, something that is in service to God, or is freedom something that is in service to the self? This is an old problem. This isn't something America uh, uh, discovered. When a society is predominantly Christian, by that I don't mean a Christian nation, nor do, do, do I mean that everyone is a Christian, but the understanding is that there is a, a Judeo-Christian ethic that, that dominates society. Even those who reject it still um, fall in line with, with some of it. Um, when that happens, freedom is primarily used in service to a divine purpose, right? So, I mean, it's always used right, certainly isn't in, in American history. But that's sort of the, the idea, is that freedom is a gift that is meant to, to be returned for, for something bigger than us. But what we've done, um, the, the rise of late modernism, really the postmodernism, is, is the emphasis on the self, which is an idol, uh, self attestation, self-identity, self-worship, uh, self-righteousness. Uh, this is ideology that we have here. So now freedom is for the purpose of self-actualization. And so um, freedom means I should be able to do whatever I want, and you can't stand in my way, you bigot. And what happens in that context is an unraveling of a society. What we've experienced in America is the two contradictory claims. Self-actualization is gospel. At the same time, group identity is gospel. So, so long as your self-actualization fits within your group identity, color, gender, whatever it might be, then, then, then it is inauthentic self-actualization. I don't know why I can't say that word today. Um, which is self-contradictory. So I'm going to be me so long as I fit within them. Right? 
uh, of course that is contradictory. And so to be a rebel is to say, um, really to adopt Christianity regardless of race, creed, gender, whatever it, it might be. But with that said, that, that's a bit of distraction. Go down to verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die the sin and live the righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you are straying like sheep, and now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I've already gone too long, but I wish, wish we had more time for this. Here is a great example of a theology of the cross, which we've talked about. It's also an example of how the cross is practical. Uh, typically, when we think about the cross, we, we want to isolate the atonement uh, in its application. Um, but, but, but I want to emphasize there's three main purposes of the atonement of Christ. Uh, one is penal substitution, that is, Christ dies in our place for our sins as our substitute. He pays the price penal as our substitute, penal substitution. Uh, that is the basics of salvation. There is Christus of victor, I mean, Christ as victor, means that Christ through the atonement, the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, conquers sin, Satan, and everything else, right? So, so it's, it's not just uh, me and God, but rather uh, he, he conquers the accuser. Um, he, he conquers our sin so we can be liberated from it. Uh, and, and there's other applications. The third that I think we often overlook is Christus exemplar. Now, many have abused this. Uh, sometimes you may hear what's called the moral influence view of the atonement. Uh, that's, that's heresy. Uh, it was raised by Peter Avalar. These names you're probably not familiar with. He's a medieval theologian, heretic. Um, but what we mean by Christus exemplar, Christ as is is our example, is to say that I look to Christ, particularly at the cross, not limited to that, but I look to Christ as the ultimate example of what a crucified life looks like. Here's in the context of abuse, actually context of abuse of slaves. And he says, look, as a slave, or really just as a believer in general, remember this book is, is dominated on the issue of uh, suffering. We look to Christ as our example of how to suffer well. So you see he merges, not just Christus exemplar. Um, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. That's Christus exemplar. But then we get... Penal substitution. He he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. So it's both and. Uh, it, what, what bleeds out of penal substitution comes this Christus exemplar thing. The reason I highlight that is because this is a key passage for that, but also because I think it should shape your own theology. That Christ should be the example for everything, and that the cross should be the center of your theology. I still remember when first became a pastor, I was driving an hour and a half one way, and actually I was driving three hours when I started out from where I started to pastor and concluding a ministry of youth ministry. I was driving three hours every Sunday to do that for several weeks. And I was listening to a book. Uh, I've, I've referenced it before. It's called Death by Love. Um, and it took this model and it changed my life that the cross is to be the center of everything. Um, and And... We need to grow in that. So let us grow from the spiritual milk into spiritual meat with the cross at the center. As we say here at East Frankfurt, Jesus-focused, gospel-centered. And you can't get either without the cross. Hope to see you guys here tomorrow.